Angie's List is now Angie, the nation's largest home service marketplace. And they are here to help homeowners get all their jobs done well. Angie has helped over 150 million homeowners care for their homes. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, come to Angie to connect with and hire skilled professionals to get the job done well. Have you had a leaky roof? We did, and it was a nightmare. But through Angie, we found an amazing roofer who specialized in flat roofs, and he fixed it right and quickly. Angie can help you find the best price for your project. Angie lets you request and compare quotes from multiple pros in just a few taps or book services at an upfront price based on local data. Angie has cost guides that tell you what others have paid for similar projects, both nationally and in your area. Get started at Angie.com, that's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. The app and website are both free to use. That's Angie.com. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Our podcasts are supported by advertising, and I'm really pleased that Quip is advertising with our program because they've got an amazing product. When was the last time you replaced your toothbrush? Do you always brush twice a day for a full two minutes? You know, these are important habits that have a huge impact on your health. And I grew up with so many misunderstandings about brushing my teeth that I, you know, that frankly, I didn't learn about until I got my Quip electric toothbrush. And they're the ones who told me, you only need a little tiny dot of toothpaste, for example, and you don't need to scrub the crap out of your mouth. You just two minutes gently with a toothbrush twice a day. You don't need to do it three times a day. You don't need to get hysterical about it. My OCD had kicked in back when I was a teenager around brushing my teeth, and I think I frankly damaged my gums going nuts with all this electric toothbrushes and stuff. Quip is a really great new electric toothbrush that's gentle and really works. It fixes those problems. It does this with a lightweight and sleek design, simple time vibrations, and guiding pulses to give you a perfect two-minute clean. Bulkier electric brushes have awkward charging stands, modes you don't need. They cost five times as much. And here's the amazing thing. Quip starts at just $25. And you can get brush head refills automatically delivered on a dentist-recommended three-month schedule for only five bucks. And shipping is free. Quip has been featured in GQ, Oprah's O-List, and Time Magazine named it one of the best inventions of the year. I agree. Go to getquip.com slash TomTHOM right now and get your first refill pack free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash Tom. It's spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash T-H-O-M. And when you do, you're also supporting our program and our podcast. Thank you. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. I want to tell you what's really going on right now. And by that, I mean the story that is not being reported in the corporate media. 
in part because the corporate media stands to benefit from all this. And in fact, on an ongoing basis is benefiting from all this. What's going on here with regard to Brett Kavanaugh, with regard to the Supreme Court, with regard to Mitch McConnell holding Merrick Garland's seat open for a whole year? This is all part of a very large plan that has been going on basically since 1980. It was really put together in 1971 by Lewis Powell, or at least that was the, the birth of it. And throughout the 70s, it was expanded. And then into the 80s, of course, Reagan came into power and we actually saw this happening. First of all, conservatives and libertarians, and I'm talking about the billionaire class. I'm not talking about the right-wing religious people or the gun people, which make the Republican coalition along with the Republicans who are only concerned about how much cash they have, basically. There's an ideology, a theory at work here that once ruled the U.S. Supreme Court and the U.S. And that theory is that if the Constitution, in Article I, Section 8, where it lists what are called the enumerated privileges or rights, the things that government may do, that if whatever the government is trying to do is not listed in that list, then the government can't do it. In other words, get ready. If Brett Kavanaugh is on the Supreme Court, it's not just Roe v. Wade that's at risk. If Brett Kavanaugh gets on the Supreme Court and there is a reliable, hardcore, right-wing, libertarian, 5-4 majority, and there will be, then you can expect to see Social Security struck down. You can expect to see Medicare struck down. You can expect to see the minimum wage struck down. You can even expect to see child labor laws struck down. And if it sounds like I'm nuts and I'm exaggerating and how could that ever be and America wouldn't stand for it, step into the Wayback Machine with me for a moment. And let's go back to 1935. The United States was starting to recover from the Great Depression as the result of the programs that Franklin Roosevelt put into place. The National Recovery Administration was the biggest. It put millions of people back to work. This was his agency for industrial mobilization. The Agricultural Adjustment Administration, the AAA, you had the NRA, then there the AAA, put farmers back on the map and gave them the right to declare bankruptcy and restart their lives and all kinds of good stuff. The Securities and Exchange Commission was regulating the stock market, the Rural Electrification Administration, the National Youth Administration. All of these had three-letter acronyms, SEC, REA, NYA, WPA, the Works Progress Administration, has sustained millions of Americans, including people like Jackson Pollock and John Cheever. The National Youth Administration gave college students like Arthur Miller the right to work their way through college. In 1935, Roosevelt introduced the Social Security Act. And in the spring of 1935, Owen Roberts, who was a recent Supreme Court appointee. He was put on the court by Herbert Hoover about four years earlier, and he was only 60 years old. He was the youngest man on the court at the time. Started voting with these other four hardcore right-wingers who everybody referred to as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And now it was five. And all of a sudden, the Supreme Court started striking these things down. They struck down the National Recovery Act, which struck down the minimum wage laws, which struck down the right to unionize, which struck down the right to challenge your employer's practices, including safety practices. All of this was in the National Recovery Act. It was all struck down by the Supreme Court. They said, you know, that's not in the enumerated powers part of the Constitution. 
Nowhere in the Constitution does it say National Recovery Act. Nowhere in the Constitution does it say Social Security. And they were fixing, by the way, to strike down the Social Security in the 1937 court. They destroyed his plan for industrial recovery. Seven months later, they annihilated his farm program. This from the Smithsonian. Annihilated his farm program by determining that the Agricultural Adjustment Act was unconstitutional. In June of 36, 5 to 4 decision, they struck down the New York state law providing a minimum wage for children and women who worked. An upstate New York Republican newspaper, the Knickerbocker Press, said the law that would jail any laundry man for having an underfed horse, they still had horses in 1936, should jail him for having an underfed girl employee. But no, this right-wing Supreme Court said no, these are not the legitimate functions of government. This is instead socialism. And we have to stop socialism. And in the name of stopping socialism, the Supreme Court struck down all these programs back in the 1930s. And four of the nine justices on the Supreme Court right now are on record in most of these situations as being opposed to modern-day socialism, which would include Obamacare, and it would include the expansion of Medicaid, which Justice Roberts took down along with his four buddies. It just goes on and on and on. And these guys refer to this stuff as socialism. So it makes perfect sense that they're trying to get Brett Kavanaugh on the court. He will join the other four as a reliable fifth vote to say, no, if it's not in the enumerated powers provision of the Constitution, it's not legal. And thus Donald Trump goes before the United Nations this morning. And reading a speech that was written in large part, apparently, by Stephen Miller has this to say. Virtually everywhere socialism or communism has been tried. It has produced suffering, corruption, and decay. Socialism's thirst for power leads to expansion, incursion, and oppression. All nations of the world should resist socialism and the misery that it brings. And you know that socialism is the new tag that the Republicans are using to paint Democrats who want to strengthen Social Security, who want to continue to have Medicare. I'm telling you, Medicare is not in the Constitution. They struck down in 1936, and this all changed, by the way, in 37, when one of the members, one of that group of five, one, one of them, one of him changed his vote and said, OK, I'm going to vote with the liberals on the court or with the they weren't even liberals back then. But I'm going to stop voting with the four horsemen. Because FDR threatened to change the court to pack the court. So this is what we are looking at right now. And apparently nobody wants to be talking about it. But go back and look at the Supreme Court decisions that were 5-4, where the four votes who lost were the four conservatives on the court. Those four conservatives would prefer that the banks aren't regulated, would prefer that your right to sue, well, actually, five of them blew that up. Your right to sue, now you've got to submit yourself to binding arbitration. Even if you click a shrink wrap 
agreement when you open your software or if you sign a, an employment agreement or if you sign a credit card statement. So they've already taken away a lot of our protections and it's continuing and it's getting worse. And this is what's really going on. And this is why these Republicans are willing to not just break precedent, shatter precedent by holding a Supreme Court seat open for over 400 days or over a year. This is why the Republicans are willing to shatter precedent and say, no, no. And Brett Kavanaugh himself last night on Fox News, I do not want an FBI investigation. Who wants the FBI investigation? The women accusing him. You know, we'll get into that a little later. That's kind of common knowledge. That's what the media will talk about. But what they're not talking about is this 50-year-long Republican plan. They couldn't take over the country with Congress. They couldn't stamp out socialism with Congress. They couldn't do it in the states as much as they tried. Scott Walker, Rick Snyder, Rick Scott, all these guys, as much as they tried to stamp out socialism, they couldn't. And so they said, okay, screw it. We're going to take the court. The court controls everything. This is the Tom Hartman program. And when they are done, the only programs that protect us that will still be intact will be the military and the police. When you look at everything that's going on, the Republican Party right now is behaving in a way that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. They are apparently willing to lose control of the House of Representatives and possibly the United States Senate to lose control of that, to maybe even lose the control of some state houses and governor's races around the country in exchange for putting a cranky, pasty old white man on the Supreme Court who believes that the president should have essentially unlimited power while he's in office, or at least unlimited immunity, and that social welfare programs and socialism are evil things. Now, why would they be willing to do that? Why are these members of Congress willing to give up their own power in order to turn our government over to, actually, in order to turn our government over to the Democrats? Why would they be willing to do that? Because they figured out, back in 1954, when we had the Brown versus Board of Education, Earl Warren was the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, and all over this country, but particularly in the South, because this was school integration, right? particularly in the South, but all over the country, the John Birch Society was putting up big billboards that said impeach Earl Warren. I remember driving by him when I was a little kid in Michigan. That was in 1954. Conservatives were enraged that the Supreme Court, which had turned, I won't say liberal, but it had stopped being right-wing, hardcore fundamentalist in 1937. And even with Earl Warren, who had been put on the court by Dwight Eisenhower, a Republican. Earl Warren was a moderate Republican. He was an Eisenhower Republican. And he said, you know, this uh, Plessy versus Ferguson decision in 1898, where the Supreme Court looked at a law in Massachusetts that said that if facilities for white people and people of color were equal, then they could be separate because the law, the 14th Amendment called for equality, but it did not call for mixing of the races. This was the law in Massachusetts, right? The U.S. Supreme Court looked to that law in 1898 and said, well, you know, if it's good enough for Massachusetts, it's good enough for the country. And boom, you had legal segregation. And in 1954, the United States Supreme Court under Earl Warren looked at that, 
Supreme Court decision and said, we're going to overturn Plessy. And they did. And that was the first moment in the 1950s when the Russell Kirk conservatives figured out that they were continuing to try and get what they wanted and get where they wanted the old fashioned traditional political way of controlling the Senate, the House and the White House. But they did that several times since then, and it never got them what they wanted. It never got the destruction of socialism and the destruction of the Democratic Party. So after Roe v. Wade in 1973, based on Lewis Powell's memo two years earlier, the right said, OK, what do we have to do? We have to pack the Supreme Court. And thus, we first we got Scalia, and then we got Thomas, then we got Roberts. I mean, you know, you go, back, go through the list, right? So now their Hail Mary strategy, they have not been able to destroy Social Security. They have tried so hard so many times. They have not been able to destroy Medicare. They have tried so hard so many times. But the Supreme Court can do it for them and will with Brett Kavanaugh. And we can talk about the impact of this on women and minorities, and those are important conversations to have. But they are they should be within the larger umbrella of the overall impact of a Supreme Court flipping back to the Lochner era and ruling against all of these programs. Welcome back. Tom Harvin here with you. And at the very end of the last break, I said something about white people and where I was going with that thought. And there really wasn't enough time at the end of the break to lay it out. When Bill Clinton ended, quote, welfare as we know it. When Ronald Reagan was talking about welfare queens, when George Herbert Walker Bush trashed welfare from the Oval Office, they were all talking about programs that benefit minorities. At least that's how that language was understood by white people in the United States at the time. Oh, Lyndon Johnson and the Great Society gave too many goodies to the, quote, lazy black people. This was the meme that had been picked up and was being used by Reagan and by Bush and that was assumed to be the meaning when Clinton went along with Newt Gingrich and said, yeah, let's destroy a lot of welfare programs and put a time limit on everything and end welfare as we know it. And, you know, most white people in America were like, okay, that's cool with me, even though, you know, the majority of white welfare recipients in the United States are white people. But, you know, they're poor, they don't vote, etc. Well, wait until the white middle class discovers that when Brett Kavanaugh and John Roberts and Sam Alito and Clarence Thomas are talking about welfare, they're talking about programs that the white middle class uses, like Social Security, like Medicare, like unemployment insurance, like insurance for your savings, FDIC. All of these kinds of programs, as the Supreme Court starts knocking them down, just watch. There's going to be such a blowback. And frankly, I wonder if that's why the Republicans don't care if they lose Congress. Hey, put the Democrats in charge and let the economy crash and let the blowback and the revolution happen and everybody's going to blame the Democrats. These guys play a long game. The Republicans have been following this plan since 1971 that Lewis Powell laid out for them, giving the wealthy the ability to overwhelm elections in favor of the wealthy 
was one of Lewis Powell's major contributions in 1976 after Richard Nixon put him on the Supreme Court in the Buckley versus Vallejo decision that said that spending money on political campaigns was free speech protected by the First Amendment, which set up Citizens United and set up basically the billionaire takeover of American politics. And now we've got, you know, a couple hundred families who contribute the majority of the money to all politics in the United States. And we know what their politics are. And this is just, you know, fundamentally wrong. But they tried in the 80s, they tried really hard to accomplish their goals of destroying socialism in the United States, doing away with public schools. Ronald Reagan put Bill Bennett in as his secretary of education. This Bill Bennett, the guy who said this. But I, I do know that it's true that if you wanted to reduce crime, you could, if that were your sole purpose, you could abort every black baby in this country and your crime rate would go down. That would be an impossible, ridiculous, and morally reprehensible thing to do. But your crime rate would go down. Yeah, so if we're just going to talk about crime rate, right. Bill Bennett worked as hard as he could to destroy public schools. He was not successful, but he set up he set the stage for, number one, an explosion in college tuition rates, a reduction in government involvement in it. When Reagan came into office, when Bill Bennett was put in as education secretary, 80% of the cost of college was paid for by state, local, and federal governments and the college itself. And 20% of the cost of going to college was paid for by students with tuition. Today, 40 years later, as a result of Reagan's policies, that are now being extended into our public schools by Betsy DeVos, 80% of the cost of going to college is paid for by the students with tuition, and only 20% of the cost of going to college is paid for by the government. They are destroying the socialism that makes college affordable. And now they want to destroy the socialism that makes high school affordable. I want to play that Trump clip again from the UN this morning in just a second. They were trying to do this legislatively. They were trying to do this by getting control of the House, the Senate, and the White House, which they did several times, and they never were able to pull it off. They were never able to completely reverse, basically, the entire New Deal and Great Society. Here's Donald Trump this morning setting the stage for us. Virtually everywhere socialism or communism has been tried. It has produced suffering, corruption, and decay. Socialism's thirst for power leads to expansion, incursion, and oppression. All nations of the world should resist socialism and the misery that it brings. This is the real agenda. This is why the Republican Party is willing to lose the Senate and the House in order to get Brett Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court. They have been trying to get another Scalia, another Thomas, Another now they've got Alito and Roberts. They've been trying to get a fifth vote on that court who was a reliable right winger ever since Reagan, who, as I recall, appointed Kennedy. And he wasn't that reliable vote. Right. Souter, not that reliable vote. George Herbert Walker Bush put him on the court. Big disappointment. They kept putting people on that they thought were right wingers. Well, now they've got the Federalist Society doing their homework for them. And they've got somebody who's willing to go on, who wants to go on the court and would be enthusiastic about ending Social Security, Medicare, unemployment insurance. These were all things the court went after back in the 30s. They're going to do it again. You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. In fact, I would argue that they're even going they're going to go after public schools and long term unemployment benefits and all this stuff. 
If you want the absolute best shirts around, you have to go to CT Shirts. I want you to try them because once you do, you'll never go back to some random shirt off the shelf of a department store. Plus, CT Shirts come in custom sizes, so you're not messing with ill-fitted sleeve lengths or neck sizes. It's time to step up your game and look your best. So I got you a special CT Shirts deal. Three CT Shirts for $99. CT Shirts use the softest, most exquisite fabrics ever. Worker casual, tie or no tie, tucked or untucked. When you're wearing a CT shirt, you will look your best. So here's the deal. One CT shirt normally costs 100 bucks, but right now you'll get three CT shirts for just $99. That's 60% off. And CT shirts come with free delivery, a six-month quality guarantee, and free returns. If you hurry, 99 bucks gets you three amazing CT shirts. So go to www.ctshirts.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. That's www.ctshirts.com slash Tom. We went through in great detail what the Supreme Court did to the Roosevelt administration in the 1930s when they were hell-bent on stopping socialism. And we listened to Donald Trump this morning at the United Nations saying that the world needs to fight socialism. Socialism is an evil. I was talking about, well, gee, how, can, how do you have a democracy without socialist public schools? How is your home safe without socialist fire departments? How do you, how do you get to work without a socialist road? What about our socialist police departments? Maine in uh, Chicago, listen to WCPT. Hey, Maine, what's up? Yeah, how you doing? Uh, I, I want to... Uh say that, you know, to me, uh, socialism is uh, what we should be calling democracy. Uh, now, to me, what, what the capitalists are doing is projecting socialism on us because this is what they're actually doing in, uh, in, in, uh, in that capitalistic way. Like, we're trying to, we, we want to democratize capitalism. Capitalism wants to... Uh, privatize democracy so that we pay for every for for our democracy so they Absolutely. have a socialistic system too yeah and, and 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 i guarantee you the supreme court this john roberts supreme court will not be striking down those parts of laws which actually work as socialism for corporations for example with obamacare um, they struck down the part of the of the obamacare law that had the government extending Medicaid benefits to people, right? They struck that down, right. the requirement the states uh, expand their Medicaid program. But the part of Obamacare that said that you have to pay to a private for-profit insurance company to get your health insurance, that part they left intact. That was that's fine with right. them because that's helping their corporate buddies. This is, exactly. this, you know, at, at least the court in the 1930s and the, and the 20s, the Lochner-era court, had some ideological consistency. I guess these guys are ideologically consistent, too. If it's, if it's good for the billionaires, call it socialism or whatever else, if it's good for the billionaires, if it's good for the corporate class, they will, they will support it. They will uphold it, like, like they did with you know, doing away with your right to sue your employer, for example, in court, uh, or, yeah. or sue the, the, the vendor who sold you a defective piece of software or hardware or whatever it may be. They will, they will protect the corporations, and they will screw the consumers. Correct, and th and this is why I say they they projecting uh, they want to call us socialism, but what we're doing is democracy. This is supposed to be a democracy too. So we're 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 being uh, democratic in in our in our in our ways of democracy, where they're being socialistic in their ways of capitalism. Yeah, 
You're absolutely right. I would, I would, you know, just for the purposes of rhetorical purity, I would slice it just a slightly bit different. I wouldn't say that socialism is democracy. I would say that socialism is a largely economic system, you know, with a political overlay that supports democracy. That you can't have yeah. a democracy in a society where people aren't educated. And we in the United States use right. socialism to educate our children. It's called public schools. Now, Nancy, uh, excuse me, Betsy DeVos is trying to do away with that. And, we you know. Be free. And, right. They yeah. want to private. See, they want to privatize That's exactly uh, right. democracy. Right. They, the, uh, th those things that should be, uh, uh, democ uh, you know, democracy, you know, they want to claim to be cap. Uh, uh, socialistic, and then they want to capitalize on them by making money on them by saying, well, we'll privatize them. Yep, absolutely. Man, you nailed it. Thank you. Uh, let's see here. Uh, John in Los Angeles. Let's see on KPFK. Hey, John, what's up? Hey, how you doing? Good. It's on your I mind. love the show. Thank you. Um, my thing is, they're willing to do this strategy right here because never mind losing the house or the Senate, if they got two-thirds of the government already in a pocket, the judges and the executive branch, yeah, they can do a whole lot more damage just with them two out of position. I agree. We, the yeah, we're all... They did with Duterte. Yeah, we're... we're... Duterte, how, how he... Um, first he got elected, then he... Uh, up the ante with the judges, and you saw what they did with the Senate. Destroyed it. Yeah. yeah you're and, talking Duterte, the president of the Philippines. Yep. Who was murdering drug users. Did they did it the same way. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. You're right. He, he changed the court. When you've got the court and you've got the executive branch, you've got two thirds of the guy. You spot on, John. You 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 absolutely nailed it. And this is this is and you know Democrats. We're sitting around going, oh, isn't it great? There's a blue wave coming. We might take the House of Representatives. My friends, the Supreme Court in 1803 took upon itself the power in a case called Marbury versus Madison. And in that decision, they said we have the power to strike down laws made by the Congress and signed by the president. We have judicial supremacy. And thus, here we are. John in Minneapolis. Hey, John, what's up? Yeah, I just wanted to agree with the other callers. You know, socialism is a democratizing of the economy. If you have uh, an economy where there's less and less of a middle class, more and more poor, and, and a greater you know, portion of the elite, then you don't have a democracy. You, you cannot call that a democracy because uh, the ordinary person will not have any power. Democracy is about having power spread out through the whole society. It's as simple as that. And, and socialism, I'm so tired of hearing it. Why don't we call what they do anti-socialism? And what Mr. Kavanaugh does, has done and the elites have done from, from uh, for, forever. I mean, they base their whole system on the British school system, you know, the good old boy system. And uh, that's how they uh, that's how they rule. They're ruling us. It's a Raj, American style. And it's, you know, I mean, this is going back to the 19th century. I want to move forward. I'm a progressive. And I think most people do. They, they want to move forward. It's not good for the society. It's going to break apart. That's what happens. And Venezuela, uh, you know, how about Norway? Norway, they socialize 
socialized all of their oil profits, and now they don't even have discussions about like this because there's no need for it, really, right. politically. Oh, and, and we could have easily done the same thing anytime in the last 150 years. You know, simply said, mineral wealth is the property of the government, like Norway did and like Venezuela did, frankly. John, spot on, as always. Thank you for the call. This, this, is, this is a really pivotal time. I've laid out what I believe is the scenario that these guys are pursuing, how they're going to try to take down, quote, socialism. They used to call it liberalism. Remember, they used to attack us as liberals. Now, they're not going to go after socialism for companies. They're not going to go after the, you know, $300 billion a year in subsidies for the oil industry and the fossil fuel industry. They're not going to go after that. But they are going to go after, quote, socialism that helps average working people. John in San Francisco, listening on Real Talk AM 910. Hey, John, what's up? Morning, Professor. Thanks for taking my call. I've been listening to you for about 12 years now, and um, you used to use an example which I thought was kind of uh, really highlights um, the difference between libertarian systems and social-based systems. And that was when you gave the example of Haiti in the turn of the 20th century in 1900 was one of the two or three richest countries in the Western Hemisphere. And um, we won't discuss how it got there. But anyway, um, what I would fast forward to today when my father, my stepfather became a libertarian, registered libertarian, he explained to me in depth over the time what they were what they were in favor of. And when it got to the to the portion where uh, you privatize all publicly owned lands, I was all, what, you mean uh, parks, national parks? Right. And he said, yes. And I was like, no, 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 way back up. Because I knew what that meant. That meant commercialism. Uh, Yosemite today is uh, on the verge. They're just dying. The, the corporatists are just dying to get their hands on Yosemite. Well, they've already turned over the concessions. Right. Well, it, it's always been it's always been a concessioned um, com- uh, company that runs the interior infrastructure of, you know, Curry Company used to be announced another company. But um, it's thirty five dollars to get in per car today. They could easily up that to one hundred dollars a person, make a Disneyland nature, nature's Disneyland, yep. you know, and, and charge one hundred bucks a person. And I know, you know, that there's guys with the, you know, the... the, the oh, Disney the would buy the concession. Out there have all charted it out and stuff. Well, that's what they want to do. And focusing on these merchants of misery, the, the Tea Party, the neocons, the, the Recrupticans, all that BS that they're labeled with is absolutely accurate. And they need to be po- uh, pointed out that that's, that's where they're heading. They want to yeah. privatize everything, toss out all the stuff that they can make money off of, and, and, and everyone else, us, the 99%, will be losers yeah. you know, and, be, yeah. and be subject to their, their whims. Spot on, and, John. And In I, fact, I, if I can uh, finish your thought, and then I want to go off on a rant. Go for it. Go for it. Okay. Thanks. Thanks a lot, John. Good to hear from you. Um, this You've probably seen these ads in favor of Brett Kavanaugh on TV from the, quote, Judicial Crisis Network, I'm pretty sure is the name of it, which I believe is one of the Koch brothers' front groups or one of the, some, one of the billionaires' front groups. 
Now, why do these libertarian billionaires want Brett Kavanaugh on the court so badly? In 1980, David Koch ran for president of the United States on the Libertarian Party ticket. 1980. He ran against Ronald Reagan for vice president of the United States. And this, you, you can find this over at uh, Bernie Sanders' website, actually, uh, sanders.senate.gov. Here is the, here are excerpts from the Libertarian Party platform that David Koch ran for, now the, the, the champion of Brett Kavanaugh, ran on for vice president of the United States. And I quote, every single word here is a quote. We urge the repeal of federal campaign finance laws and the immediate abolition of the despotic Federal Election Commission. We favor the abolition of Medicare and Medicaid programs. We oppose any comp compulsory insurance or tax-supported plan to, promote, to provide health services, including those which finance abortion services. We also favor that, which was just throwing the dog a bone. We also favor the deregulation of the medical insurance industry. We favor the repeal of the fraudulent, virtually bankrupt, and increasingly oppressive social security system. Pending that repeal, participation in social security should be made voluntary. And I will add, I guarantee you that'll be before the Supreme Court in the next year or two. If they get this five, five, uh, if they get, if they get a, a fifth vote to, to go back to the Lochner era, which is what we're talking about doing. We propose the abolition of the government postal service. We oppose all personal and corporate income taxation, including capital gains taxes. We support the eventual repeal of all taxation. As an interim measure, all criminal and civil sanctions against tax evasion should be terminated immediately. We support the repeal of all laws which impede the ability of any person to find employment, such as minimum wage laws. We advocate the complete separation of education and state. Government schools lead to the indoctrination of children and interfere with the free choice of individuals. Government ownership, operation, regulation, and subsidy of schools and colleges should be ended. We condemn compulsory education laws, and we call for the immediate repeal of such laws. We support the repeal of all taxes on income or property of private schools, whether profit or nonprofit. We support the abolition of the Environmental Protection Agency. We call for the dissolution of all government agencies concerned with transportation, including the Department of Transportation. We specifically oppose laws requiring an individual to buy or use so-called self-protection equipment, such as safety belts, airbags, or crash helmets. We advocate the abolition of the Federal Aviation Administration. We advocate the abolition of the Food and Drug Administration. We support, uh, uh, we support an end to all subsidies for childbearing built into our present laws, including all welfare plans. We oppose all government welfare relief projects and aid to the poor programs. All of these government programs are privacy invading, paternalistic, demeaning, and inefficient. The proper source of help for such persons is the voluntary efforts of private groups and individuals. We call for the repeal of the Occupational Safety and Health Act. We call for the abolition of the Consumer Product Safety Commission. We support the repeal of all state usury laws. Usury laws set the top interest rate that banks can charge you when they want to screw you. That's the agenda for this Supreme Court. David K. Johnston tweeting about Michael Avenatti. Michael Avenatti is saying that he had witnesses and a victim 
to the uh, essentially gang rapes that uh, Brett Kavanaugh and Mark Judge were participants in. And uh, Johnston is saying, you know, okay, if this is the case, how did this guy get past the FBI background checks? What did the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell know? Now, I think he knew about this because Mitch McConnell, you recall, was opposed to Kavanaugh. He went to the president and said, don't put this guy on the bench. There's stuff in his background. Put on somebody who we don't really know anything about. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Our podcasts are supported by advertising, and one of our advertisers is Harry's. By now, you probably know that I love shaving with Harry's. Nate uh, loves shaving with Harry's. In fact, everybody I know who's tried Harry's is like, whoa, this is incredible. You get an amazingly close shave with Harry's, a smooth, comfortable glide with their perfectly weighted razor. It's incredible. If you add Harry's fantastic smelling shave gel, you have the perfect recipe for the best shave you'll ever have. Harry's does all this and at a great price, too. They own their own world-class blade factory in Germany where they grind steel into sharp, durable blades that are made to last, and they pass the savings along to you. Don't confuse Harry's with those other pricey online brands that force you to subscribe. With Harry's, you can resupply whenever and however you want. Auto refills or one-off a la carte, your choice. And at just 2 bucks a cartridge, that's less than half the price of Gillette Fusion Pro Shield. For a limited time only, Harry's has a special offer for listeners of my podcast. New customers get $5 off a shave set from Harry's with the code TOM, T-H-O-M, at harrys.com. That means you get the starter set, the five-blade razor, weighted handle, foaming shave gel, travel cover, all for just 3 bucks, plus free shipping. When you use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, at harrys.com. Join the millions of guys who've already switched, including me, and go to harrys.com today. Use the code TOM at checkout to claim your offer. If this is proven, it's time for Kavanaugh to leave the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals as well. And, And by the way you know, get the FBI on this. We'll get back into that conversation in a few minutes. But first, Sina Tusi is with us. Sina is a research associate with NIAC, the National Iranian American Council. NIACouncil.org is the website, of course. And, and Sina is uh, at Sina, S-I-N-A-T-O-O-S-I. Sina, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks Happy for joining me. Uh, tell us about this. I, I, I think this has been pretty radically underreported in the United States, this terrorist attack in Iran. Uh, that happened recently that um, uh, many Iranians are suggesting has uh, the fingerprints or, the f- or, or possibly the fingerprints of Saudi Arabia or the UAE on it, which would tie back to us. And what's going on with this? Yeah, so this terrorist attack happened on Saturday at a military parade in southwestern Iran, city of Ahvaz. And a separatist group from Iran's Arab minority in that province claimed responsibility, as did ISIS. But the thing is, uh, Iran's leaders have been accusing uh, its regional rivals like Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates of sponsoring this attack and trying to really provoke Iran to react and escalate the regional tensions. Mm -hmm. And there has been some inclination, you know, some suggestions in the past year, rhetoric from the Saudis and the Emiratis that does kind of play into the scenario that they may have indeed kind of sponsored such an attack, and they are trying to foment unrest in Iran and increase tensions. And there's a couple 
signs that indicate that, you know, maybe the Iranian officials, uh, there is something behind them claiming these foreign powers have sponsored this attack. And this includes last year, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, who's very hawkish towards Iran, very anti-Iranian, very close with the Trump administration. He publicly said that the Saudi Arabia wants to take the battle inside of Iran. And shortly after he said that, there was an attack by ISIS in Tehran. This is last summer, summer of 2017. So shortly after he said, we want to take the battle. So at that time, you know, this played into the Iranians at that time who said, you know, Saudi Arabia had a hand in that as well. But then after this attack on Saturday, the Aspos attack, the senior advisor to Mohammed bin Zayed, who's the crown prince of the United Arab Emirates, He's the ruler of Abu Dhabi, one of the Emirates there. Mm-hmm. And he's, he's also spearheading this kind of anti-Iran kind of uh, coalition in the region. He's very close with Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia. Very, he's close with Netanyahu and Trump. His senior advisor to him, who is known for speaking for him, especially on foreign policy, he openly said after Saturday's attack in Ahbaz that moving the battle inside Iran is a declared option and wow. that the next phase, these attacks will increase. This is like saying, we will support terrorism inside another country. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're not not really trying to avoid, you know, being associated with these. So how does this, Sina, how does this play out? If, If Iran continues to come under attack from outside powers, at what point does this start to alter the internal politics of Iran, perhaps hardening them? or undermining the Rouhani, the relatively moderate prime minister. Um, But also, uh, you know, I think a a lot of Americans are very concerned about the possibility of war with Iran. We've got a guy as Secretary of State, John Bolton, who wrote an op-ed in the New York Times saying the best way to stop Iran from getting the bomb is to bomb Iran. I mean, it was literally the headline. How would that play out? What what are the logical endpoints for this? Right. So Bolton, he also wrote a memo before he became National Security Advisor that was released, uh, published in the National Review last August, August 2017. Yeah, excuse me. I called him Secretary of State. He was National Security Advisor. Pardon me. Thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah, National Security Advisor. And he openly in this memo, as part of his suggestions for Trump's Iran policy and the alternative he had for Trump leaving the deal. This is from August 2017, this memo. He openly called for providing U.S. assistance to Iranian separatist groups, including these minority Iranian Arabs in Iran's southwestern province. And, you know, now we have this group that claimed this attack on Saturday. So Bolton has kind of played into this and played into these Iranian paranoias that, you know, the U.S., these outside powers are sponsoring these attacks. But the thing with these Gulf states like the UAE and Saudi Arabia, we know that for the past over a decade, they've been pushing the U.S. to go to war against Iran for them, basically. And they've opposed any improvement in U.S.-Iran relations. They've imposed U.S.-Iran negotiations. And we know, I mean, this is John Kerry. He said in interviews in the past like year that all throughout the nuclear negotiations, while they were making steps towards reaching this landmark nuclear deal, in his talks with Emirati leaders, Saudi leaders, other regional countries, they constantly just kept pushing the U.S. to bomb Iran. They're like, don't negotiate with these people, just bomb Iran. Mm. We know even from people like former Secretary of Defense Robert Gates, you know, Republican, was in the Bush administration, then the Obama administration. He said as far back as 2007 in his meetings with the Saudi king, they would just ask the U.S. to bomb Iran. And, you know, uh, Robert Gates in his memoir has a kind of tidbit about how offended he was, and he, uh, he had quotes like, you know, as if we were mercenaries or... They want to fight Iranians to the last American. 
So this is a, it's a very dangerous context where these countries, and if they did sponsor this Akbar's attack, they basically want to bait, maybe a pro- bait Iran, provoke it to do something, some kind of counter escalation. Right. We have this escalatory cycle, and then I can easily imagine things spiraling out of control and the U.S. really being dragged into a war against Iran, which would ultimately be on the behalf of these countries. Right. So it's a very dangerous situation. And in terms of Iran's regional politics, you know, we, Rohan, he has lost a lot of political space. You know, he really, his platform is all about reaching the nuclear deal, and he spent all of his political capital on that. And Trump, by withdrawing from the nuclear deal, really has devastated Rohan, his political capital. He doesn't have much political space right now. And you see stuff like this Afghan terrorist attack. It, it gives more, an open hand, more of an open hand to the Revolutionary Guards. You know, it, it kind of... Um, validates hardliner narratives about Iran's kind of regional position. And right now we've seen the Revolutionary Guards, they've been taking more assertive actions in the region. Just a couple of weeks ago, after Kurdish militants and kind of Kurdish separatist groups attacked an Iranian military base inside Iran, they launched these missile attacks, the Revolutionary Guards, into Iraq at a Kurdish target. So that, which was kind of unprecedented. So it's, it's getting very messy. The United States has shown the world through the Bush administration, and frankly, the, the Obama administration as well, by that, that we are willing to absolutely destroy a nation and kill many of its people in order to change the political head of that country. We did it first in Afghanistan, then we did it in Iraq, then we did it in Libya. We are participating in the doing of this in Syria. There's probably other countries in the region that I'm missing. And that is essentially what it appears Saudi Arabia and the UAE and perhaps Israel are calling on us to do to Iran, right? Bomb the crap out of the country until, you know, large chunks of the populace are dead. Chaos reigns. The the, the people in charge have been decapitated. That, number one, seems just mind boggling to me. And number two, I believe that this morning at the UN, I was in and out of the speech that Trump said that, he wants to see uh, Iranian oil exports reduced to zero. Maybe he said that on a, in another interview or somebody right, else said substantially, that. Substantially, substantially reduced, which right. was uh, kind of backing down from the previous aim to reduce so, it to zero. So, so, so what, is, what does Iran do when the, the lifeblood of their economy, their oil sales, are reduced? Do they, do they close right the now, Straits of Hormuz? Yeah, yeah, so I mean, they're... You know, they don't think it's going to be reduced to zero. And the thing is, right now you have Iran engaging in these negotiations with Europe to salvage the nuclear deal. And the Europeans are trying to offer Iran these economic incentives to maintain Iran's compliance with the nuclear deal, which Iran is still compliant with the nuclear deal. The International Atomic Energy Agency has verified in 12 reports that Iran's like very meticulous and abiding by this deal. And contrary to Trump, is not violated and pushing other countries to violate the deal. Right. But Iranians basically... They, will, they haven't really used their leverage in response to Trump's actions right now. They've been, uh, you know, they haven't restarted their nuclear program. They haven't used their regional leverage in terms of escalating really that much. So they have a lot of underused leverage, but they're basically, from my assessment, uh, seeing how these talks with Europe play out. November 5th is a key date where America's un- unilateral oil sanctions and financial sanctions are really hard-hitting sanctions. They're going to come back. Hmm. So if by that time, you know, they can reach an agreement with Europe to kind of allow them some amount of sanctions relief and continuing to export some amount of oil. And, you know, China, Russia, the rest of the world play a major factor into this. But if things start going south and Iran is not getting much and the U.S. is imposing newer sanctions, you know, Iran can restart its nuclear program. 
And they have a lot of influence in these various uh, regional states, and they can right. be a spoiler power. They can raise the cost in the region. Sina, we're, we're, we're out of time. Sina Tusi, a research associate with NIAC, NIACouncil.org. Thank you, Sina. Thank you. Tom Harbin here with you, and on the line with us is Kyle Learman. Tom, it's Kyle Learman. How are you? Great. Thanks for joining us. You are the CEO of Michelle Obama's When We All Vote. You are formerly the Senior Associate Director of Public Engagement and Senior Policy Advisor in the White House Office of Public Engagement in the Obama Administration. The website is whenweallvote.org, and people can tweet you at Kyle Lear, underscore Learman, L-I-E-R-M-A-N. Kyle, tell us about National Voter Registration Day today. Well, Tom, thanks so much for having me on. You know, it's a big day. We have thousands of events happening around the country for National Voter Registration Day, and it's part of the When We All Vote campaign. And people are laser-focused on making sure as many eligible voters across the country get registered and ready to vote. Folks can go to whenweallvote.org, as you said, but we also try to make it as easy as possible, folks, so they can also text We All Vote to 97779 uh, to start the process as well. That's great. Two, three weeks ago, Greg Pallas was on this program, and he was talking about Brian Kemp. In fact, the New York Times had run an op-ed called Brian Kemp, Enemy of Democracy, and how in 2017, Brian Kemp, as Secretary of State in Georgia, removed 591,548 voters from the rolls and was fixing to do the same, about 400,000 voters from the rolls in Georgia this year, and pointed people to rock the vote at the time. They've got a site where you can check your voter yeah. registration. And we were overwhelmed with calls, particularly from people of color in Georgia who were saying, I just discovered my name's been taken off the voting rolls. What are you guys yeah. doing about this? This is not just happening well, in Georgia. This is happening all over the country. And now Brian Kemp, the guy who's doing this in Georgia, is running for governor against a black woman, Stacey Abrams. Well, first off, I'll just say, to make sure everyone knows, when We All Vote is a nonpartisan 501c3 initiative, so we don't take sides on candidates or issues. Um, but, you know, I think... What, I don't think this has, has made, to do with sides. No, exactly. Uh, Mrs. Obama talked on Sunday night when she was at a rally in Las Vegas about how there's folks, unfortunately, across the country, both making it harder for folks to register, uh, kicking folks off the rolls, and even making it harder for people to volunteer to help out others uh, get registered. So our message is really simple to every single American check your registration. So don't just assume you are registered. Go back online. There's no harm in going through the process again. Uh, one, to make sure that uh, no one sort of pulled any shenanigans and, and, and getting you off the rolls, but also uh, you might have changed your address recently. You might have moved. There's no harm in double checking, making sure you're on there. Fill out that form again, put it in, that's the easiest way to know that you are registered and going to be able to vote this fall. Kyle, this is, this is nothing new. Back in 1980, the guy who was the co-founder of the Heritage Foundation, Paul Weyrich, was giving a speech to a group of Christian activists in a church in Dallas, Texas, and he said this. Now, many of our Christians have what I call the goo-goo syndrome, good government. They want everybody to vote. I don't want everybody to vote. Elections are not won by a majority of people. They never have been from the beginning of our country, and they are not now. As a matter of fact, our leverage in the elections quite candidly goes up as the voting populace goes down. The Washington Post today on their front page laid out, or at least the electronic front page, laid out how in state after state after state, Republicans are throwing up obstacles to voting. This used to be the Democratic Party's thing prior to the Johnson administration, to the Kennedy administration, really, in the South, preventing black people from voting by and large. But now it's the Republican Party's thing. 
Um, and in some areas, they're closing voter polling places in the, the blackest county in Georgia. Well, so first off, it's obviously in- incredibly inappropriate and unfortunate for anyone to try and block folks from registering and voting. And, um, you know, as I was saying, I think the most important that we, uh, thing we can do as citizens is make sure we are registered. But don't stop there. We have to make sure that everyone else is registered. We have to make sure, no matter what barriers uh, are unfortunately put up, that we are pushing through, through quality and strong organizing in our communities across the country and through getting the word out, spreading the word on days like today, national voter registration. And then uh, we will elect leaders uh, who care about voting and who care about the issues that affect us all. And, you know, we want to make sure that we are doing everything we can uh, to depoliticize this issue. I've been across the country for a week of action this week, talked to folks on both sides of the aisle and uh, of good faith who want to make sure that folks have access uh, to registration and voting. And it's unfortunate that some folks have tried to politicize this issue. We know that uh, Clarence Thomas, from his vote in Bush v. Gore, is of the opinion that there is no constitutional right to vote for president of the United States in the Constitution. I mean, it's, that's a b- virtually a verbatim quote from Bush v. Gore. Um, the, 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 the phrase right to vote appears, I believe, three times in the Constitution. But the Supreme Court has never looked at the Constitution and said, gee, there's a right to vote in the Constitution, which is why all this is still going on. Do we need to amend the Constitution to get around a recalcitrant Supreme Court? Uh, I, I'm expecting to see more things like the evisceration of the Voting Rights Act that happened, you know, uh, two years ago, maybe three years, whenever it was, um, yeah. uh, in Shelby County. I'm expecting to see that just go on steroids once they get their their fifth vote on the court. Um, what do we do? So, yeah, you know, it's, it's you probably know more about this than I do, but I think we've got to elect leaders who are, you know, uh, you know, thinking about this as an issue uh, and making voting access easier. There are some really great ballot measures across the country to increase access uh, to voting and voter registration. Um, And so it's about people getting active. But I also think, Tom, it's about, you know, changing the culture in this country around voting. Um, There are significant barriers, but um, in many instances, people just decide they make a choice not to vote. Uh, One fifth of Americans in this country are not registered. You know, the most common reason uh, when, when people tell me that they're not registered to vote, I ask them why. And the most common reason I get is because that puts me in the pool for jur- jury duty. We need to I've heard it too. We need to unentangle those two things and we need to do it immediately. Kyle, we're out of time, but Kyle Learman, the CEO of Michelle Obama's When We All Vote, the website, whenweallvote.org. You can tweet them at, at whenweallvote and at Kyle underscore Learman. Kyle, thanks. Thanks, Tom. Good talking with you. So let's check in with Luke with Talk Media News. He's uh, usually uh, camped out at the United Nations. He's headquartered at the United Nations. Uh, this report brought to you by GoatsfortheOldGoat.com and Loving What You Do, Alan Ratner's new book. And Luke, what is going on in, uh, in the U.N. today? I understand, I, I watched it actually, our president claimed that he had done more than FDR and everybody, I don't know if it was everybody, but it sure looked like you know a lot of the audience just started laughing at him. Uh, so going, I mean, the first thing, basically, that President Trump says, he gets on stage and he says, in my two years in office, uh, we have achieved more than almost any administration in the history of my country. And there's sort of a pause, and Trump totally set himself up for this. And the, the sentiments of the room, in a beautiful way, just reveal themselves immediately. And you start to hear people talking, a little laughter breaks out, and Trump 
senses this and he says, oh, okay, that's how you feel. I didn't expect, I didn't expect that. And then I think that gives everybody the occasion to, to actually, you know, voice how they're truly feeling. They've he sort of normalized the back and forth between the men on the podium and the yeah. folks in the audience. Now, this is, head to stage, this really is an applause talking. line for him when he's doing stump speeches. It's, well, it's true. And, and so he was expecting think, applause. He was. Uh, so much of this speech really feels like it was hitting on points that are highlights of the Trump rally, you know, in Kalamazoo or, you know, Wheeling, West Virginia, wherever he, you know, whenever he does these things, he, he uh, had repeated points in this speech where he was bashing sort of the globalized consensus on things. And it was a speech that I sort of informally titled, you know, No Apologies. He, he basically um, addressed all of the things that countries are complaining about, uh, you know, regarding U.S. policy, complaining about us pulling out of the Paris deal, complaining about our separation of children from their parents at the border, our lack of uh, sort of sympathy for the global refugee issue, our pullout from the U.N. Human Rights Council, our dissing of the International Criminal Court. And he sort of seemed to turn those issues around against his critics and say, a, I don't care about your criticism, and B, here's why we did that. So, for instance, let's say on, on sort of U.S.-Mexico border policy, um, you'd never sense that we just had, an, uh, you know, a year where, you know, images of children separated from their parents were splashed all over the TV. President Trump actually says, look, um, you know, we're working with countries in Central America to uh, stop illegal migration, not because we want to keep these people out of our country, but because we are humanitarians and we want to dissuade human smuggling. Um, and that, you know, the countries of Latin America, the, the problem is the migration itself, that migrants are, you know, fueling the drug problem. I mean, it was really to, to turn... To turn reality uh, on its much, head. To, yeah, to turn that much criticized policy into some sort of humanitarian strong suit, I think was a pretty... Um, bold move on, let's say, international migration and, and refugees, President Trump sort of argues, hey, you know, the best thing we can do for refugees is place them near their homes so that they can get back to their home countries quickly and rebuild. I mean, that's totally ignoring the statistics that show just how long most conflicts rage for and that, you know, calls, let's say, for Syrians to return to their homes have been made for years by the Syrian government. But I don't think many people uh, are in a position at all to go back to their homes. So this is this is what we told the SS St. Louis in 1939 when 900 Jews tried to get off the boat in New York Harbor and come to the United States. And we said, nope, nope, you should go back to your home country. And they went to Auschwitz. Exactly. And so I could cite a number of other examples of this, but I, I will say, you know, we were told this speech was written in large part by Stephen Miller, the president's sort of whisperer on the border policy, uh, sort of the anti-migration uh, architect. Uh, that does not surprise me at all. Um, and there is this line that I think will be quoted in the history books where uh, Trump is sort of summing up his philosophy uh, of American power projection. And he says, here's a quote, you know, America is governed by Americans. We reject the ideology of globalism. We embrace the doctrine of patriotism. Basically right. saying, hey, you know, this is much like the sovereignty message that they were um, using a lot last year and they're repeating again this year. Um, look, countries need to do everything they can to protect themselves from their critics, right? From the nagging yeah. globalists. Who Lucky Lindbergh is alive and well. 
Exactly. It, it was a pretty stunning message. And I, I think it's a tough sell in the U.N., at least publicly. I mean, a lot of leaders come here and they speak very highly about human rights and environmental protection and, you know, sticking up for the rights of minorities. And then I'm sure they go home to their countries and do anything but that. But it is it is, you know, disconcerting for the United States of all countries to, to get up on stage and basically say, we don't really care about international norms. He even said about the UN Human Rights Council, hey, you know, like we left, we hoped this council would change its policies, but they're still being mean to our many friends. You know, he wants a, a world where, you know, if you're close to the US, you're immune from that kind of criticism. It's, it's yeah. quite a lot to take in. Quit picking on the Saudis, it's, it's amazing. Luke Vargas, thank you, Luke. Good talking with you. And thank you for being with us today. It's been a fascinating day, and I think tomorrow is going to be even more interesting. This week's winding up weird. Same time, same bat place, right, tomorrow. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. When you make decisions for your company, you always look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing and shipping to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your process to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, books, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart if you sell online. Schedule package pickups through the dashboard and automatically see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers with rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are, even on the go. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other business decision makers with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com, code PROGRAM.